0: Artificial general intelligence and AI, which has all the cognitive abilities of an adult human, which then probably quickly goes on to become a super-intelligence, at which point we have an entity on the planet which is much, much, much smarter than the smartest human that ever lived. And that is a big moment for humanity. That's the that's probably the turning point in human history. And it's fascinating that it's happening in this century, probably, maybe towards the end of the century. Within the lifetimes of people life alive today, I, 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 hope my son will be around to see it. If we get that right, then I think humanity will become like gods.
1: Thank you, Kalim. It's a pleasure and honor to have you on Change, I Am Possible, which is India's first feature tech podcast. And to my audience who don't know about you, I'm going to give you a brief introduction and then we'll jump dive into the uh, the the conversation. So Mr. Callum Chase is a keynote speaker, a best-selling author on artificial intelligence, and he has authored books such as The Economic Singularity, Surviving AI, and Pandora's Brain, which is a novel about the first super intelligence on earth. Before becoming a full-time speaker and author, Mr. Callum had a 30-year career in business and journalism, working for companies such as BBC, BP, KPMG, amongst others. Thank you, Callum. It's a pleasure and honor to have you on uh, Change and Possible Podcast. So I-, I was on your social media page and it's the headline says, The AI Guy. What's the story behind the name? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: um, thank you for inviting me. Eddie. It's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. The reason why I've chosen that rather uh, cheesy subtitle is that I have always been fascinated by the possibility of advanced artificial intelligence and what it would do to us. Uh, I read a lot of science fiction as a kid and I still read it. And obviously, AI, advanced AI is a, a recurrent theme in that. But I always assumed until 1999 that advanced AI wouldn't arrive until I was long dead. And I read a book by an author many of your viewers will know of, uh, Ray Kurzweil, who's a genius but also a very strange man. And the bond, the one of his books that I read was Are we, Are we Spiritual Machines? He made me consider, he made me realise that superintelligence, really advanced AI could arrive in my lifetime or perhaps my son's lifetime. That was a, a, a shocking uh, and really profound moment for me. And that was 1999, as I say. So I wrote a novel of the first version of Pandora's Brain in in the year 2000, but I was working hard. I didn't have time to spend much time on it. I retired in 2011 and that's when I turned my attention full-time to AI and what it means for us in the future. Now, right up until about 2014, 2015, I was one of a small number of people, relatively small number of people who were taking that idea seriously. In 2014, Stephen Hawking, the the late Stephen Hawking, wrote an article or published an article in the Huffington Post which said, strong AI, superintelligence is probably coming and when it does arrive, it will either be the, uh, the, the best thing or the worst thing ever to affect humanity. And I think he was absolutely right. There's been a lot of commentary about it since, but I think he was absolutely right. Then the world got interested. So, in 2015, we had the great robot freak out and pictures of the Terminator appeared in newspapers all over the world all the time. And it's a great image. Why not? And people started asking me to give talks and to and I, and I wrote more books uh, because I've been thinking about this for a long time. So I call myself the AI guy because I've been thinking about it a long time. And <clears throat> I'm sure I'm wrong about a lot of things, but, you know, I've got a fairly well worked out uh, overall view about what may happen and what we should do about it. Lovely, lovely,
1: yeah. De- definitely, obviously, I mean, in the course of conversation, we talk about the Terminator and super intelligence and even Ray wine. but today, you know, our con- conversation is incomplete if we do not talk about COVID. Everyone dwells in the negatives uh, of, of the pandemic and, and agree that it's, it's impacted us, disrupted us terribly, and it's difficult to find anything positive about the pandemic. But let's try and present the positives or the brighter side of COVID. So what according to you have been the positives of COVID?
0: Uh, there has been, I mean, first of all, it's important, it's important to say that overall it's been a disaster. Uh, you know, many people have died, many people have lost loved ones, uh, have been given long lasting illnesses, businesses have closed all over the place. It's, it's been a real disaster. One thing it has done is it's made us very aware that plagues haven't gone away. You know, the plagues have been a constant companion of humanity, uh, but we haven't had one for quite a while. I suppose the last really big one was uh, the Spanish flu in 1919, which killed more people than the First World War did. And of course, there's been SARS and MERS since then. But in the future, we'll probably have another one. And the one we've got now is really bad, but it's not an existential risk. It's it's, It's unthinkable that it could wipe us out we could have a plague which could wipe us out. You just need to twiddle the R number a bit and it could take us out. So one good thing about this COVID is it might inoculate us against a much worse one in the future, so that's one thing. And some people say it's going to accelerate automation, and I guess it will, but I think the speed that automation proceeds at, and for reasons which we may come on to talk about later, I think automation should be speeded up. It's a good thing for us to accelerate it. Um, But I think the rate is governed by the the progress on the technology rather than social acceptance, social drive for it. Um, The the latter does have an impact, but not as much as the the rate of of development of the technology. Now, here's a very controversial suggestion as to why COVID might be globally, historically, viewed as being a good thing. I know a lot of people who I respect, who are not stupid and not bad people, who voted for Trump. I'm not one of them. And I think Trump is a danger to the world. I think he's a populist danger. I think he's a threat to American democracy and American democracy is important to all of us. So COVID if COVID hadn't happened, seems to me quite likely Trump would have been reelected. If that had happened, I fear American democracy would not have survived another four years of Trump. So maybe, covid has got rid of trump
1: sure i mean what whatever he has done to the world the uh the environment and and i hope that the new president joe biden comes and kind of like changes that so so from my perspective about Covid, i've seen at least here in india i mean you know, what what is done is basically it's cleaned up the environment uh the work from home is is a great thing is something that we've understood you know because uh, in Bombay, we, we are an extremely populated city. You know, we, at times, you know, if you're moving from an office to a home to office, you're stuck for hours. And now then suddenly the work from home uh, and, and, and understood that you can be productive, there's family time, and obviously the acceleration of digitization now, whether there's good or bad, obviously we'll, we'll we'll get into the conversation. So so let's let's talk about the book economic singularity what does the book address and you are the first person I have come across who has put economic in, in front of the, the word singularity. So could, could you explain that?
0: There's an economist called Robin Hanson who used the phrase before me but he meant something quite different by it and I didn't find out until later. So what I mean by the economic singularity is the time in the future when we have to accept that humans, the great majority of humans, cannot get jobs, they can't be paid for work. They'll still work, uh, assuming society continues to exist, they'll still work because humans always need projects to be happy, so we'll, we'll, we'll do work. We just won't be able to be paid for it. And the reason for that is that there will be machines which can do pretty much whatever we can do for money, cheaper and better and faster than we can. And I call it the singularity because the um, singularity is, a point in a process it's a it's a term borrowed from maths and physics it's a point in a process where a variable becomes infinite and at that point everything changes so a singularity is a metaphor for the biggest kind of change you can have and it has a reasonable intellectual heritage it was first applied to human affairs by john von neumann the inventor of one of the founders of modern computing so it's simply a, a metaphor for a really really big change bigger than the revolution and the economic singularity is the point when, as I say, we have to accept that humans, most humans can't do jobs and we will need a significantly different type of economy. My suspicion, I've, I've increasingly come to think, is that it will still be a form of capitalism. We will still need the market, but we're going to need, obviously, a way to provide resources for all the people who haven't got jobs. And I don't think universal basic income is the answer, because I think all that universe I think universal basic income, if the economy remains pretty much the way it is now, it's not affordable. But even if it even if we could afford it, then the very best it would do, because it's a basic income, is make everybody poor. And that's not good enough. We have to make everybody rich or at least comfortable. So my preferred solution for the economic singularity, my preferred outcome is what i call fully automated luxury capitalism so it's fully automated because machines are doing most of the jobs that need doing and it's luxury because everybody has a great standard of living uh, because they're being given money or being given resources by some central organization might be government-run might be decentralized somehow on the blockchain and um, capitalism because I have a great deal of scepticism about any kind of communism or, you know, thoroughgoing socialism. Uh, central control, I think inevitably means massive corruption and inefficiency. Uh, so capitalism and m- market driven. There will be things which are scarce, probably forever. There are only a certain number of origi- you know, original Vermeers in the world and um, uh, the, the, the best, you um, Raga instruments and um, original Aston Martin DB5s and so on, and they need to be allocated by a market mechanism. I think.
1: Right. So, so you know, how do you think the world is gonna look like in the next ten or fifteen years? You know, automation is growing now because of social distancing, because of COVID, because of social distancing. More and more companies are going to implement automation. Now people are going to go jobless that that's, that's going to create huge huge disruption. The larger population is not, uh, skilled for the new job, uh, which is there in the market, you know, whether it's, uh, your artificial intelligence, machine learning, augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, how are we prepared to this? you know, for this huge disruption, do you think it's going to be like a double whammy because COVID has anyway disrupted us? Automation is around the corner. Social distancing is going to create more uh, 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 automation job job loss. What's going to be the impact? What's your perspective on that?
0: Okay, so let's separate some of those things out. Firstly, COVID. I think uh, by the end of next year, COVID will be much worse than a bad memory, but it won't be something that, governs our lives anymore. You know, we'll have vaccines. It looks like the latest Oxford vaccine, the last of the 3 that have been announced so far, is cheap and easy to distribute, easy to store, should be available for most people, everybody around the world fairly soon, you know, middle to the end of next year. And I think that means people will get back to traveling and people will get back to going into offices. Uh, because we actually, although we often think we don't, we really do enjoy each other's company. Um, I'm personally looking forward to going traveling again. I'm, I've been grounded for a year and it's been very boring. Um, one of the places I want to visit again is India. I've been to India quite a lot, but I haven't been for a long time, so I want to get back. Um, and so, so I think COVID will pass and will leave important imprints, for instance, the working from home thing. I think there will be a blend of working from home and working in offices. The automation piece is a longer-term piece, I think. I don't see the economic singularity happening for at least 20 years, probably 30, maybe 40. So sort of 20 to 40 years. In between now and then, there will be increasing and accelerating automation. But as long as there are jobs, a reasonable number of jobs that humans can do and machines can't do, there will be lots of jobs for humans. Uh, and, and that's going to take a long time to change. So. Moore's law, if Moore's law continues, the exponential improvement in computing uh, means that in 10 years' time, the machines we have will be 128 times more powerful than the machines we have now. That's powerful, but probably not powerful enough to take away all human jobs. In 20 years' time, they will be 8,000 times more powerful. Wow. In 30 years' time, they will be a million times more powerful. Now, I personally don't fancy competing in the workplace against those machines. In between now and then, we will have accelerating automation, but it means that people will have to change their jobs rather than that they won't have any. And we've been through this before. We went through it in the industrial revolution. You know, you you said people don't currently have the jobs that, that the skills that they need for the new economy. They didn't at the beginning of the industrial revolution either. Pretty much everybody in the world was a subsistence farmer. They had to learn how to become workers in factories. It was incredibly uncomfortable. Quite a lot of people died and it was brutal. It was a brutal transformation. Let's hope this transformation is a lot easier. It should be, and, and it's partly up to us whether it is or not. So the way I see the world in, as you say, the next 10 years or so is COVID will leave some impacts, but we'll mostly, will leave it behind. Automation will be accelerating, but it means accelerating churn in the job place rather than massive joblessness. And then on the other sort of general technology front, there's interesting things like self-driving cars, smartphones and then smart glasses that you can have conversations with, digital twins and increasingly good augmented and virtual reality. Lots of fascinating stuff like that.
1: There are some really, really cool things happening, you know, but then this year has been a complete, complete year of disruption. You know, you have coronavirus, there was locust infestation, forest fires, torrential rain in China. Then I think the worst part was that explosion which happened in Beirut, you know, Lebanon. Then Joe, Joe Biden, he wins the election, but Donald Trump is leveraging the power of his office to subvert the win. Then the state of India is another story and the global path of aggression. It's making me very, very anxious. You know, somehow I feel that we're living in the most uncertain times. Like I said, you know, the job loss is at an all time high depression, poverty, stress, racism, fascism, polarization. Are we pushing the common man, the ones who run the engines of the global economy way too far? Do you see this global in of inequality this gro- global in, growing inequality bursting into a civil war a revolution of some sort so as a fo- as a futurist as, as a foresight expert how worried are you with this current trend
0: let's let's focus in on global populism global right wing populism that that's the common thread in a lot of the things that you just mentioned and i am very worried about that Uh, i'm very worried because not least because my home country is i believe being very severely damaged Uh, brexit is the result of i think right-wing populism so populism is a word that gets thrown around a lot and not a lot of people know what it means what it means is a political movement that argues that the world used to be much better and it's been damaged, going on ruined by a, an elite. And the populist politician says, follow me and I will restore the past world to you. It, it's been and gone numerous times. It's not new, we've had it numerous times before. When it's most successful, it's devastatingly damaging. And the most successful example of it uh, is the Nazi party in Germany, and they burned the world. So that's how bad it can get. Now, are we in a uh, in a wave of populism which is that bad? No, I don't think so. Uh, As I say, I think Trump is the world's number one exponent of it, simply because he leads the world's most powerful country, and he is on the way out. Maybe he'll come back in 2024, or maybe he'll be in jail. Who knows? There are other even more powerful exponents like Putin in Russia and Erdogan in Turkey. Uh, I'm not going to make any comments about India, that would be rude of me. Um, Those people are even more powerful within their own country, but their countries are not as powerful as the USA. But to take my country, England, um, Britain, and it is mostly England that's, that's done this to us, the idea that somehow the European Union is a bunch of elite bureaucrats in Brussels who've stolen British liberty and the Brexiteers would take it back is largely a lie. The proponents of it, Rupert Murdoch, Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage, are mostly opportunist liars, and they've persuaded an awful lot of people who are unhappy about various things to vote for them, and I think those people have been lied to. I think they've made a mistake. They obviously think I'm wrong, so, you know, there's a debate, Uh, but I think England, because I think Scotland will probably leave the UK and Northern Ireland will rejoin, or rather join Ireland, so England and Wales will be left on their own. And I think England and Wales will suffer really badly, culturally and economically in the next decade. And eventually people will think "Mm, that wasn't a good idea and they'll apply to rejoin the EU. That's my guess about what will happen. I have a, I I try to be optimistic. I try to be upbeat and I have a possible upbeat uh, prognostication about the whole thing, which is the absence of the UK from Europe will allow France, Germany and the other countries to finish the project of developing the single market, not necessarily a single super state, but a single market, which will enable Europe to take its rightful place alongside the US, alongside China and alongside other countries like India as major powers, major political and economic forces on the world stage. And England will eventually ask to climb back on board
1: you think there is a need for the entire world to unite? Because, you know, I mean, we always talk in terms about India, America, US as a global power. There's a current, obviously, there's a power global power shift which is happening. But do you see a time in human history where the entire world could be looked as just one unit rather than these different nations because somehow all that they do It's it's just divide us. Do you see anything like that happening? And do you see a role of technology to create a better world?
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Technology has already made our lives far, far better than they used to be. 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago, people in England knew nothing of what was happening in India and they cared nothing for what was happening in India and vice versa. And that's completely changed. Now you know we get news about what's going on in India minutes after it's happened, and we care. Uh, I think as, you know the the, the arc of history—pompous phrase, but quite fun. I think it bends towards humans having more and more empathy for the ho- for the whole species rather than just one narrow nation. I don't think nations will disappear. I don't think they should. I love the fact that. Italy is different from Spain, is different from India, is different from Australia. It's what makes the world interesting. It's one of the many things that makes the world and humanity interesting. But I think that as we get richer, as we get better technology, we do take more of an interest and we care more about what's happening in all parts of the the species, the, the community.
1: But I feel that, you know, we are at a momentous history in time. Where never before a common man with internet connectivity, desire and intent has been given the opportunity to or, or, or the, to change the world. I mean that's what is the difference from or, or past history till now. I mean today I think you know there are people sitting in rural areas with the help of connectivity and a desire and intent and a basic education. I think <laughs> it, it, they, they can build startups which can change the world. So, so, I think we are at that cusp of human history where change if, if we like really do it with a deep desire and intend to create a better society, I think we can create a better world going from... I, 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 from I, I, complete,
0: I completely agree but you can't, I don't think it's possible, I, I've never heard of a plan to get us from the current not perfect world to a utopia in five seconds flat. There's a really nice idea um, coined by Kevin Kelly. Uh, the word is utopia. So he says utopia is a impossible and b very boring. And rather than saying we must in some time period, whatever it is, a minute, five minutes, five years achieve utopia, what we should do is, is have a world which is really good, but is just keeps getting better. And that's protopia. Now, the the rate at which it keeps better, you can getting better, you can squabble about that. But that's the goal. You sort of aim for utopia, though you don't know exactly what it looks like. Um, But you just aim to keep getting better and better. And he calls that protopia. And I think that's an excellent idea. Yeah, I I love this. We're not living. We're not sorry. We're not living in a dystopia now. You know, we're living at the best time in the whole of human history ever to be alive, without a doubt. Agreed. So, so you know, to say that because Jeff Bezos has got a million times more money than I have, so what? I am still much, much better off than my grandfather, my great grandfather, etc. And that's a good thing. Let's hope that my son, his life is even better. And despite all the current prognostications and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, I'm sure it will be. Right. I, I
1: love what your perspective, I mean your protopia. Yeah, because I think we are always looking for, you know, a utopian world and we are shit scared of the dystopian world but looks like we are going towards the dystopian world and then you're saying protopia maybe that could be something different and we create a continuous path where we are continuously striving to create a better world so you are the ai guy so let's talk about artificial intelligence today open ai is GPT 3 uh, is is in the news you know but there's a lot of unwanted hype when it comes to artificial intelligence now from your vantage point how is artificial intelligence creating transformation today and how do you think it will change the world when artificial intelligence gets widely adopted and deployed and when do you think we will have artificial general intelligence?
0: So artificial intelligence isn't one thing. Uh, It it is a, um, I suppose it's a technology, and we already have a lot of it, but it's getting better and better, and it's getting more and more widespread. That process is gonna go on for a long time. There's no end point in the next five, 10, 20 years. Where you can see it now, very clearly is in the products and services from the tech giants. So uh, Google search, uh, the mapping services, Google Maps, Apple Maps and so on, Uh, Google Translate, uh, the recommendation systems, they're not so good, but you know, they're they're still quite impressive uh, from Amazon and Netflix and so on. And also similar products and services from Google, Alibaba and Tencent in China. Um, And as a side note, It is high time that Europe and India and other players stepped up and contributed to this this revolution. Anyway, so so those companies are providing remarkable services and you mentioned GPT3, which is the world's most advanced natural language processing system developed by OpenAI, partly uh, co-founded by Elon Musk. So, we already have a lot of it and currently you can see it mostly in the products and services of the tech giants. But it is starting to permeate out into the wider economy. And anybody running a big company, and most people running small companies, are thinking about how do I deploy AI in my business? And it's not easy. Um, you need a really good business case. You need a good solution that it's trying to solve. You need acceptance by senior management and people all the way down the organization. You need the ability to understand it. So you need people who are experts, or you need to buy that expertise in from outside. Uh, And a lot of experiments are are underway and a lot of them are failing, but some of them are succeeding. And I think over the next 10 years, we're going to see lots and lots of industries transformed by AI uh, and we're going to see it making lots of money for people and saving lots of money. Uh, One of the things that hasn't really started happening yet, but it's beginning is the internet of things where there are sensors embodied in everything around us light bulbs tables bridges phones and they report back on their situation so you can do predictive maintenance you can know where everything is remarkable numbers of advantages from making the world intelligible which is one of the things that, that ai does so that's going to keep happening more and more and i talk about there being two singularities uh, coming in this in this century i think this is the century of two singularities. The first one we've already talked about, which is the economic singularity, which as I said, I think is probably 20 to 40 years away. And then I think later, and I do think these two things are likely to be separate, but maybe they will merge into one, but I think they'll be separate. The, le- the next one is the better known singularity. It's the technological singularity, and that's the arrival of artificial general intelligence and AI, which has all the cognitive abilities of an adult human which then probably quickly goes on to become a super intelligence, at which point we have an entity on the planet which is much, much smarter than the smartest human that ever lived. And that is a big moment for humanity. That's, the, that's probably the turning point in human history. And it's fascinating that it's happened in, the, in this century, probably, maybe towards the end of the century, within the lifetimes of people alive today. I, I hope my son will be around to see it. If we get that right, then I think humanity Will become like gods, perhaps more like Hindu gods than Christian gods, which is probably a good thing because the Christian gods not very nice. Uh, if we get it wrong, then extinction is quite likely, but it's not the worst possible outcome. So it's a really big deal. Yeah. Uh, so
1: yes, I think we are at the cusp of us humans becoming Homo oh, Deus, the gods, and and. And yes, I think we as the entire globe uh, people should come together and have a conversation on this because you mentioned about Internet of Things, sensors. Yes, we are getting into the spatial world where everything physical is going to be digitized. It will be, uh, be having sensors, it will read the world around, store data, give us the information, help us you know, create better. Uh, products and solutions. Yes, it, there are some fantastic things, things happening like age reversal, uh, virtual reality. The, obviously, I'm super, super excited. But then there's this downside that, you know, yes, we are at the cusp of playing God through a human history. I mean, we are not so good in handling, you know, taking good decisions, you know, as a collective. Are we prepared as a race of this huge power that we are gonna have. You've written a book called Surviving AI. So how excited or worried are you about all of these technologies which is growing exponentially?
0: I'm very excited about it and I hope, I imagine that comes through in the way I talk about it. Uh, AI and all the other technologies that that we're developing they are technologies and technologies are always dual purpose they can be used for good or bad they can have good or bad outcomes looking back at human history we've made a lot of mistakes and we'll carry on making a lot of mistakes it's, it's part of our nature but on the whole we've i think moved in a positive direction you know we have fire we have electricity we have nuclear power and overall uh, people might argue with this but overall we've used those technologies more for good than for bad uh, and i think we can do the same with ai but of course as our t- technologies get more powerful the risks from bad use either inadvertent misuse or deliberate misuse get bigger obviously uh, somebody could blow the world up with nuclear weapons uh, and ai super could, I think, be an existential risk. It is an existential risk for us. But as I say, I'm hopeful that we'll continue to have more good than bad. And the upside potential of AI is staggering. So yes, I I am excited. I think we should all be excited. But we also and and I'd like to see more people, obviously, you know, you you and I, I'm sure agree, it'd be great to have everybody around the world thinking about these things, partly because if everybody's thinking about them, we're more likely to get the good outcomes. Because uh, crowds are generally smarter than individuals and 8 billion of us can make sure it works out well. But it is also important for people to keep a sense of perspective. A, a key thing which people often miss is timing. A lot is in the timing. We're not going to have superintelligence tomorrow. The Terminator is not, not just around the corner. Now some people, including a friend of mine, Ben Gertzel, who's a very um, storied AI researcher thinks it could happen in 10 years. I think he's too optimistic. I think it's more likely to be towards the end of the century. But he's a smarter guy than me, and he might be right. But it certainly isn't round the corner right now. And if people think, "Oh, it's all going to happen tomorrow," then they alienate other people who look out in the world and don't see it there. <laughs> so it's important not to um, to 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 succumb to the hype over the timing. I think all these amazing things are going to happen. But they're just not all going to happen overnight. It takes time for human individuals and societies to adopt new technologies. It took 50 years or more for an industry to adopt electricity Uh, and AI is taking time. AI is frankly taking more time than I expected to be adopted by the wider economy. You know, the AI, the tech giants adopted it very, very quickly. They had the ability, they had the data, they had the money, they had the compute power. The rest of the economies adopting it much more slowly because they don't have those things it will happen but timing is an important part of the of the equation right
1: completely agree you know at times if you see right now we are over expecting out of all of these technologies you know all of these technologies right from artificial intelligence iot blockchain and uh, genetic engineering you know they are at a nascent stage but it, it it's growing rapidly and somehow you know there is this there is also the other side know, eh, a group of people, you know, because there, there seems to be a resistance to technology. You know, there is a group of conspiracy theorists who are bringing down 5G. Then there is, because Yang Kui, he genetically engineered, you know, two babies in China, there's this global outburst for, for it, you know. It, it looks like, you know, we are in a cash 22 situation. Do you see that there could be chances of people or government coming together and blocking this revolutionary science and technology, which could take uh, us humans to uh, our next uh, evolution.
0: So governments can uh, slow down the advance of technology and they do, but generally when governments do it, they simply disadvantage their own people and their own economies and it proves to be a failed model and then it gets overthrown. Either the government has to change its approach or the government is removed. Sometimes governments can hold out for a very long time. North Korea is an example of a country holding out against most technology uh, for decades and getting away with it so far. They won't get away with it forever, I I imagine. Um, Could people more generally, Kind of rise up against technology and stop it or or, 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 or reverse it. I don't think um, anywhere near a majority of people will ever get behind the idea that five G is bad for you and and start tearing down masts. Um, there's always, you know, I'm sure in the whole history of humanity, I'm sure there's always been a few lunatics who have found it to their personal advantage or simply been crazy enough to believe really silly things you know, david ike uh, an englishman who believes that actually i'm not sure what he believes i think he thinks that our rulers are all reptiles or we're all reptiles and the rulers aren't or something i don't know he's he's, he's his ideas are crazy he may or may not be crazy but his ideas are crazy and there's a fair number of people who follow him, follow him. but they're, but they're a tiny minority and and they are not going to succeed um there is a bigger and broader phenomenon of tech lash and I think this is, you know, a partly a natural response to the very dramatic sudden arrival to prominence of these of these tech giants and the astonishing rise to massive wealth of their owners, you know, Jeff Bezos going from a well-paid management consultant to the richest man in the world by a long distance in in a, in a decade or two. It's remarkable and and there's it's it's natural that there'd be a bit of a backlash against that. Personally, I think the the main motive force behind backlash, uh, behind TechLash, the tech lash, the backlash against technology, is that the tech giants, and in particular Google and Facebook, have stolen the advertising industry from Rupert Murdoch and people like Rupert Murdoch. And Rupert Murdoch, although his newspapers and media outlets don't make anything like as much money as they used to before Google and Facebook stole the industry, he's still powerful. He's very powerful. He's too powerful by a long way. And he, drums up a lot of hatred against Facebook and Google. And I think a lot of it is quite unreasonable, quite unjustified. I realize I'm probably in a minority about that. I don't use Facebook myself and I don't particularly like it. Uh, but my sense is it's much more a force for good than it is for a force than it is force for evil. Uh, it, the way it enables people to stay in touch with their friends around the world and families, and the way it enables people to make contact. I think that's a great thing. The more humans can make contact with each other around the world, the closer we get to that, that uh, great situation where humanity, every every member of humanity feels like a member of humanity and doesn't just feel like a member of their own person, little tribe or their own nation and so on. Um, so, I think Techlash will fade uh, because I don't think Murdoch will have the power to keep it going forever. Right, right. So I, I was on a LinkedIn
1: page and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I saw that you had written, uh, written something about the transcension hypothesis by uh, John Smart. Uh, so would you like to talk a little bit about that? Because I personally have been invested in virtual reality and the way the technology is growing. I feel that in another couple of decades, maybe, we'll be able to create virtual worlds, which will be indistinguishable from the physical world. Now, uh, according to John Smart's Transcension Hypothesis, he says that instead of us going outwards and going to space, it seems we're going to go inwards. Would would you like to talk a little bit more about that?
0: As I understand it, um, the idea is it is partly a response to Fermi's question, which is often called Fermi's paradox. Right. I don't know why, because it's, it's not a paradox. The Fermi's question, Enrico Fermi was a physicist, an Italian physicist in the early 20th century. He asked, where is everybody? He looked up at the sky and said, where is everybody? There's the famous Drake's equation, which, w- which tries to um, offer some basis for thinking about whether there is extraterrestrial life, and how common it would be so we live in a very very big galaxy 100 billion stars and there seem to be about 100 billion galaxies in the universe that's a lot of stars and we now know that most stars have planets around them even if it's the case and this is a wildly arrogant assumption but even if it's the case that you need an earth-like planet to have intelligent life on it there should be a ton of intelligent life out there we're a relatively young planet 4 billion years old or so in a university that's 13 plus billion years old. Um, there should be tons of life, tons of intelligent life, which is more advanced than us, but we don't see any sign of it. Not only do we not have universally agreed to be credible reports of little green men wandering around on earth, but we don't even see anybody flashing the number pi using um, light or some even faster if there could be a faster way of getting messages around the universe, we don't see any signs of civilizations throwing stars around in order to generate huge amounts of energy. And that's a real puzzle. Why is that the case? My own personal favorite explanation is the simulation hypothesis, which is that we live in a video game and the the universe out there is just painted in. It's not real. But the transcension hypothesis is a different explanation. It's the idea that when civilizations get advanced enough rather than, as you say, rather than reaching out into the universe, traveling out into the universe, they shrink themselves down because that's the way of maximizing the use of compute power, the 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 universal's potential compute power. Richard Feynman said something along the lines of there's lots of room at the bottom. As you go, as you shrink down to the femto scale, uh, machine computing can be faster and you as I say, you can maximize the computronium, the the sort of the available matter in the universe to be used as computing. I don't find that terribly convincing. It's a nice idea. And um, I'd like to read a science fiction book about it, but it it strikes me as being a dangerous way forward because it leaves you very vulnerable to things that affect your local part of the universe. So asteroid strikes, uh, people blowing things up with nuclear weapons, gamma ray bursts in the neighborhood, I think any really advanced civilization is going to want to make itself robust. It's going to want to have backups of itself all around the universe, because that way they'll be more likely to survive. So even if we did transcend by shrinking, I think we'd still want to travel around the universe. And I think there would always be, if you have enough really advanced civilizations, there'd always be some which were just talkative or even mischievous and wanted to say hello. Wanted to interfere in the lives and, and existence of other civilizations. And we just don't see that. So that keeps driving me back to the simulation hypothesis.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so yes, I, I think it's a very, so, so yes, somehow, it, both simulation hypothesis and, and transcension hypothesis, for me, it's one and the same thing because, uh, uh, you know, somehow, like like i said about virtual reality we are creating worlds which is going to be indistinguishable from a physical reality the way we are pushing right now we are already bit building social vr we are, we, we are worlds uh, i mean uh, we, we started with uh, the big bang two particles colliding and then we, we this this ever expanding universe right now now we, have, we are creating that world where we are already able to kind of simulate all of our five senses, it looks more likely that we will be creating the next generation of people who will be getting into virtual reality world. You know? so, so yes, I think it, 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 it's, it's a very, very superb point of time in human history where you could possibly play a role in not just creating a business but you could possibly create be creating worlds you know so so we, yes we we are in in that space so what what's coming up next for you are you writing a, a, any books and what's, what's the how where do you see the world going in the next 10 years
0: so what i'm doing now is um editing the audio version of a novel which is a sequel to my first novel pandora's brain so pandora's brain was a a novel about the first super intelligence on the planet and the sequel explains what really happened to that entity uh, at the end of the first novel and takes him on to some i think very interesting adventures um, and there are more super intelligences in it uh so i'm working out on that i'm wrestling with Amazon to get the third editions of my non-fiction, my two main non-fiction AI books, Surviving AI and Economic Singularity. Uh, I've, I've got the Kindle versions up, I'm working on the paperback versions, and I'm having a wrestling match with Amazon over the audio versions. Um, and the thir- those third editions, are, and crikey, they've come on a long way since the first editions, which were back in 2015 and 2016, respectively, as the field is moving very fast. Uh, And so I'm busy doing that. I've been writing a lot more articles. I've been going back to my journalistic roots. I've been writing articles in Forbes. So there's lots of articles uh, by me about the impact of AI on different industries on Forbes. And once this wretched COVID thing is out of the way, I'm looking forward to getting back on the road and giving talks again and traveling around the world again, because I absolutely adore doing that. it's it's such a privilege to get paid to go around the world visit interesting places meet interesting people share my ideas and have conversations it's 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 uh it's something i never expected to happen and it's uh it's kind of a i can't say it's a dream country because i didn't dream about it before it happened but it's it's a it's a joy to do
1: Lovely, lovely. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure and honor to talk to you, Calvin. I wish and I hope that, yes, everything comes back to normal. I hope to see you here in India sharing your insights, coming in, sharing your insights. Yes, I think technology is, is that tool. If we leverage uh, or implement it correctly, I think we'll be creating a better world. You know, uh, I, yes, but yes, obviously, I'm also worried with the current scenario of the world. I know that we are in a great space, but the current inequality in things worries me a lot. The political scenario worries me a lot, but I'm extremely gungo and positive about technology. I hope the technology plays a role in not just Creating a better world, but also reversing uh, this this entire COVID uh, uh, disruption that is created. So, thank you, Kalim. It was a pleasure and honored to have you on uh, Change amp Possible podcast. And to my listeners, if you like what you see in here, please press the subscribe button. Until next time, see you guys. Bye bye. Thank you.
0: Uh, <laughs> thank you, Eddie. It's a pleasure.